The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar, and they kept his testimonies and the ordinance which he gave them. You answered them, O Lord, our God. You were to them God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds, exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord, our God, is holy. All right, we are in Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 19 today. This is entitled, That He May Establish You. So, Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 19. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. In this passage, we will once again talk about the status of Israel in the world today. People can go too far in one direction or another very easily when considering them and their status before the Lord. John Hagee says they are saved through adherence to the Mosaic Covenant, and he finds no reason to either evangelize them or otherwise tell them about their need for Christ. That's also the stand of the Roman Catholic Church. Other preachers say that the church has replaced Israel and that there is no further purpose in the redemptive narrative for them as a people. In other words, Jews, who collectively are Israel, are just like anyone else. They are saved by faith in Christ, 
and that's it. There are those who say that what Jesus did for individual Jews is different than what he has done for the Gentiles. That means the Jews are saved in one way and by one gospel, and the Gentiles are saved in another way and by another gospel. There are those Gentiles who think that unless they follow the cultures, customs, and law of Israel, they can't be saved. And of course, there are those who, including some Jews, who think that Jews should just be exterminated and that will take care of the world's problems. Yes, our text verse comes from Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. From our text verse, you could immediately eliminate one or more of the incorrect ideas about the state of Jews in the world today. In other words, Paul just said that there's one gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles, so you can take hyper-dispensationalism and you can chuck it right out the door. In fact, if you went to the book of Romans and studied only the verses that include the word Jew, go home today and do it, in them you could probably resolve almost every wrong doctrine that arises in regard to them that I mentioned above, and several others as well. The problem is that we, meaning we in the church, run ahead with presuppositions about things without knowing, or at least without checking out, the entire story that God has laid before us. Those presuppositions may come from any of countless places. We hear them, we accept them, and we go with what we heard. From that point on, our minds are made up. That's called cognitive dissonance. Once your mind is made up, you're not going to change no matter what. And we'd rather jump into the lake of fire than admit that we are wrong. And this is certainly the case with countless other doctrines as well. It's just that the sermon today deals with Israel, the law of Moses, and inevitably with the new covenant. As such, in looking at the broader picture, but based on the words of the passage for a starting point, we can make correct interpretations that we might be unable to make without studying this passage. This is the beauty of going through the law. We can reinforce correct doctrine, recalibrate our incorrect doctrine, and learn to reject teachers who have faulty doctrine. I'll give you an example before we go on. Yesterday, one of the people that I do mission work with said, I want to talk about cremation. And so the question to me was, is it okay or is it not okay? I said, is cremation or any burial mentioned anywhere in the New Testament? Anybody? No. So it's obviously not something on God's mind. He doesn't care. Jesus Christ is the Christ of the nations. Nations all over the world have their own customs for burial, their own customs for, you know, what day to do this, and he doesn't interfere with those things. If you're worried about cremation, don't be. I got to tell you, if I punch my ticket tomorrow, burn me. I don't care, okay? What is the difference between being cremated and having your body eaten by worms? Exactly. It makes no difference at all. People are cremated in nuclear blasts. People are cremated in boats that have their engine explode and the boat burns up, whatever. If that disturbs you, check the New Testament. If it's not mentioned, it is not a point of worry, okay? That's a very important thing to do. Don't get cognitive dissonance. Well, my pastor told me you can never be cremated or you'll not be saved. That's Church of Christ doctrine. They believe that. If you're cremated, you can never be saved. 
incorrect, okay? So, let's get into the sermon and get some correct doctrine about certain issues. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is that he may establish you today. It's verses 10 through 19, which is all of our verses. Verse 10, all of you stand today before the Lord your God. All of the coming words of this verse are in the plural, and Moses highlights the scope of his words carefully. Atem nitzvayim hayom kulechem lifne Yehovah Elohechem. You stand the day, all of you, before Yehovah your God. By saying everything in the plural, it is more than just you, Israel, being addressed, but each of you in Israel is being individually addressed. Each is accountable for what is to occur, and none can say, I am not a party to this event. Further, Cambridge says the verb is probably reflexive, and this certainly seems to be correct. You, each of you, have taken your stand today. Reflexive means that the subject or the object performs its own action, okay? Each of you have taken your stand today. As such, it is a way of confirming that the action is voluntary and without coercion. With that understood, Moses continues his words, ensuring that absolutely nobody is left out of them. Verse 10 continues, your leaders and your tribes and your elders and your officers. Your heads, your tribes, your elders, and your officers. The translation of these words varies. The King James Version and some others make it three categories, saying your captains of your tribes, your elders, and your officers. The New King James Version makes it four categories, but it adds in a bunch of ands, which are not in the Hebrew. The words clearly specify four categories, saying your leaders, your tribes, your elders, and your officers. This may seem like niggling, but it is important to understand the all-inclusive nature of what is being conveyed. It is not merely the heads who are being addressed, but rather the heads and also all of those in the tribes, along with the elders and officers. This is then explained by the words, verse 10 continues, all the men of Israel. Moses is speaking to the entire congregation of men. Not a single person is excluded from what is being conveyed. All are of Israel, and Israel is comprised of all. To further confirm this, and to also continue to express the all-encompassing nature of who is being referred to, Moses continues by saying, verse 11, your little ones and your wives. As the heads of the households, the males speak on behalf of these. The little ones and the wives are present, and they are, by default, spoken for because of the stand taken by the men. In entering into the covenant, none are excluded. This is actually referred to by Peter in Acts chapter 2. The Mosaic Covenant now being ratified is inclusive of all that occurs in it, as it includes the promise of a new covenant, which is found in Jeremiah 31, 31, then what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 can reasonably be said to be spoken of by him in reference to Moses' words right now. Here's what it says in Acts 2.39. For the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. As for the Mosaic Covenant now initially being expressed, the rights and the privileges and the blessings and the curses will apply to all without exception. 
That was clearly defined in chapter 28, but it is noted again now by Moses. But this extends yet further. Verse 11 continues, also the stranger who is in your camp. The words now go to the singular for the rest of the verse, speaking of Israel as a whole. And your singular Israel, stranger who enmidst your camp. It may be that not every Israelite would have a stranger who performed a menial task, but any in Israel would be included. When the blessings come, these will participate in Israel's blessing. When troubled times come, these will not be exempt from what occurs. This is inclusive of those, verse 11 continues, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water. Mechutev etzecha ad shoev memecha. From cutter your trees to drawer your water. The idea is that of the lowliest in the land. They are the bearers of the burdens, and yet the covenant applies to them. This then is the reason for Joshua's inclusion of these categories concerning the Gibeonites from Joshua 9. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord in the place which he would choose even to this day. A covenant had been cut between Israel and Gibeon. As such, Israel was obligated to perform the words of it. But they set the conditions for that by subordinating the Gibeonites to these lowly services henceforth. This is clearly and poignantly highlighted later at the time of Saul. Here's what it says in 2 Samuel 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. The covenant now being set forth by Moses protects the rights of all who come under its auspices. Saul violated the rights of those Gibeonites and atonement had to be made for what occurred. That process of atonement continues to be described in that chapter. For now, Moses continues with his words, verse 12, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God. The wording is very precise, and it carries a sort of pun on the word Hebrew. Le'averecha bivrit Yehovah Elohecha. To your passing over in covenant, Yehovah your God. The word avar, to pass over or through, is very close in spelling to Ivrim, or Hebrew, meaning passer over. The idea here is that the Lord's covenant is set forth, and the people must pass over or through it. It is as if the covenant is a passage that is taken. These words logically fit with the first clause of verse 10. All of you stand today before the Lord your God that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God. You see, they fit together. In essence, you have made your stand in order that you may now pass through. The Aramaic Bible inserts the word not into their translation. This is an important thing they've done. They've misunderstood the Hebrew and they inserted a word. And I'll explain it in just a second why. Here's what the Aramaic Bible says. That you will not pass over the covenant of 
Lord Yehovah, your God, and over the oath of Lord Yehovah, your God, which he covenanted with you today. They say not pass when this one says pass. You may pass. Why would they do that? Here we go. The reason they have done this is that when a covenant is made, crossing over it implies a violation of it. This has been seen several times already, such as in Deuteronomy 26. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed, that word, avar, crossed over your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. However, the Aramaic does not convey the intent at all. One must first cross over, meaning into the covenant, before he can cross over, meaning transgress the covenant. You see, you go into a covenant, and then you violate, you go out of the covenant. See that? That's what's going on. The Aramaic Bible failed to make this distinction. The idea is that sin is not imputed without a law. Moses is expanding the laws of the covenant made at Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai, now in Deuteronomy. Therefore, they must first be apprised of the terms before they can be blessed by or held guilty of the terms, right? Everybody understand that? If I have a law and I don't tell you what it is, I can't hold you guilty for it. But as soon as the law is published, everybody is now guilty if they break that law. Sin cannot be imputed where there is no law. He is giving them the law. Then they will violate the law and cross back over the covenant. That's what's going on. Verse 12 continues, and into his oath. The word is Allah. It signifies a curse, an execration, or an oath. This is the first time it is used in the book of Deuteronomy, and yet it will be seen five times in this chapter and once again in the next chapter. Ellicott defines it as an imprecation in the name of God. In this, it will bring a curse upon the party who does not fulfill what is agreed to. Verse 12 continues, before I go on, can the Lord violate a covenant? That means the curse remains with Israel alone. Okay, verse 12 continues, which the Lord your God makes with you today. Asher Yehovah Elohecha koret imecha hayom, which Yehovah your God cuts with you the day. The idea of cutting a covenant conveys that of the death of a sacrificial victim. Adam Clark explains the process well by saying the following. One, the parties are about to contract were considered as being hitherto separated. There's a separation between the Lord and Israel. They are now going to get rid of that by cutting a covenant. Two, they now agree to enter into a state of close and permanent amity. Okay, if they violate it, then they go outside of the covenant. They're not close anymore. Okay, there, that's number two. Three, they meet together in a solemn manner for this purpose. That's what Moses is doing now. Four, a sacrifice is offered to God on the occasion, for the whole is a religious act. Five, the victim is separated exactly into two equal parts, the separation being in the direction of the spine, and those parts are laid opposite to each other, sufficient room being allowed for the contracting parties to pass through them. There you go, passing through into the covenant. Six, the contracting parties meet in the victim, and the conditions of the covenant by which they are to be mutually bound are recited. There they are in between the animal, and they give the conditions there, and the covenant is made. Seven, an oath is taken by these parties that they shall punctually, 
and faithfully perform their respective conditions, and thus the covenant is made and ratified. Israel agreed to it. The Lord has always performed it. He's kept them as a people all these thousands of years, even when they're disobedient. People need to understand the Old Testament typology to understand why Israel is still Israel under God's protection to this day, okay? If one thinks the symbolism through properly, what Christ has done is quite evident, The new covenant was cut in his death. The idea is that God and man meet in the victim, meaning Christ. He is the God-man. And therefore, we come to God passing through his humanity. At the same time, he is fully God. And so God passes through Christ's deity. Both meet at his cross where reconciliation between the two contracting parties have come together. Everybody see the symbolism? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, let me boast nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. It is where our reconciliation with God comes. And if that is true, you cannot lose your salvation. The covenant is cut and it is permanent. The Mosaic covenant is not itself a means to an end. It is given to show God's standard. Christ came to live out that standard and then to serve as the greater point of meeting with God because of the failure of Israel to punctually and faithfully perform their respective conditions. For now, Moses continues with his purposes concerning the giving of the law. It is, verse 13, that he may establish you today as a people for himself. Lema'an hakim otecha hayom lo le'am. To end purpose may stand you the day to himself, to people. The idea is that there is an end purpose in the cutting of this covenant, which is to establish Israel as his own people. One must question the thinking of people that say that the Lord is through with Israel. If anyone with even a modicum of biblical sense in him is asked if Israel has been under a curse for the past 2,000 years, he will answer what? Of course they have. Even replacement theologians will say, yes, they are under the curse. Every evil thing that was promised in the previous chapter, saying that it would come upon Israel, has come upon them during that time. Does anyone here today disagree with that? Okay. What does that imply? If Israel is under the curse of the covenant, it by default means that they are under the covenant, bound to it by obligation. As this is so, it means that the Lord is also bound to it. That is why he has brought the curse of the covenant upon them. It's the very reason. God has no more rejected Israel than he has rejected his promise to Abraham. The covenant stands and it must be removed from them or it remains binding upon them. Those are the only two choices for this group of people. The words of this verse are all in the singular. You, Israel. The Lord has established a new covenant with Israel, again, Jeremiah 31, 31. Until they enter into that covenant, they remain bound to the old. Despite the controversy, this is without controversy. This is clearly seen in the next words. Verse 13 continues, and that he may be God to you, just as he has spoken to you. The words are closely repeated by the Lord in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mouths and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Of this, Charles Ellicott marvelously explains what people to this day 
cannot seem to understand, and he wrote this hundreds of years ago, it must be carefully observed that this is the aspect of the covenant which makes Jehovah responsible for the fulfillment of the whole. He takes all this trouble for the sake of establishing thee in his presence for a people. That's Rashi who said that. He's citing Rashi. The people's part, as described in this verse, is only to accept the position. And thus the covenant of Deuteronomy 29 is brought into the closest similarity with that which is called the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31, Hebrews 8, 8, the form of which is, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. God undertakes for the people's part of the covenant as well as his own. In Deuteronomy, the first half of the new covenant appears here in Deuteronomy 29, that he may be unto thee a God. The second part appears in Deuteronomy 30, verses 6 through 8. The Lord thy God will circumcise thy heart to love the Lord thy God. It's all up to the Lord to get this done. Israel just must go through the process. The onus is on the Lord in regard to what is stated here. The onus on Israel is to do what the Lord has stated in the law. If they fail, they will suffer the consequences of the covenant. But the Lord's responsibility goes beyond administering the blessings and the curses to the full performance of Israel in getting through the covenant as a people and entering into the new covenant as a people. That is future to us now. It is probably going to happen in the expanse of one of our lifetimes. We may not be here for it because we'll be out of here at the rapture, but it is going to happen probably. I don't, let's see, I'm 57. It'll probably happen during that time, okay? We'll, we'll say hopefully that that is the case. I don't like to date set, but Israel is being prepared right now for what is coming. They will enter into the tribulation period. We will have seven years of them under the law of Moses learning that it doesn't work and they need Christ. And that will happen. They will call on the Lord and Christ will return to them. That is what is being pictured here in these words. As this has never happened, the onus is still on the Lord for that to come about. This is the purpose of the predictive prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. They are to remind Israel and they are to remind replacement theologians that there is still a plan and a purpose for Israel in the world. This is seen again in the next words. Verse 13 continues, And just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all mentioned together seven times in the book of Deuteronomy. In all six of the other times, they are mentioned in relation to the land of promise. For example, in Deuteronomy 1.8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. In chapter 9, the land grant must be inferred from the surrounding context. But that is even the case in this chapter, where Israel's grant of the land is referred to half a dozen times in verses 22 through 28. If the land is the promise, and if Israel is still under the covenant, as is testified to in them being under the curses of the covenant, then it must be that the people will be brought back into the land in order to bring them into the new covenant. And this is exactly what the prophets testify to time and again as the Old Testament progresses and even as the book of Revelation confirms as well. Understanding this, Moses continues. Verse 14, I make this covenant and this oath 
not with you alone. The words now return to the plural, with you all. In other words, Israel is the collective, but it is not only with those individuals who are standing before Moses at this time. If that were so, then the covenant would end when the last person there died. Verse 15, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. Of this, the John Lang commentary incorrectly states the following. He says, the covenant was to embrace not merely the descendants of those now living, meaning Moses' time, Israel in its generations, but in its true idea and apprehension, all nations, those far off. He's talking about all nations in there. This is entirely wrong. The Mosaic covenant is given to Israel and to Israel alone. That will be seen more clearly in a moment. For now, almost all of the translations say, but at the beginning of this verse, unless all of the clauses are taken together, the word but confuses the thought that is being presented. Hence, translators must paraphrase the words of the final clause saying, as well as, also, or something like that. Here's what it says. I will make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. The word key is used. It means for. Translating it that way brings the proper sense to what is said. And not with you alone I cut this covenant and this oath. For whom being here with us standing today before Jehovah our God, and whom no here with us today. Though my translation is a bit cumbersome because it's more literal, you can see that it is referring to one act. The covenant is cut with Israel regardless as to when an Israelite enters into the stream of existence. That is why the plural began the words in verse 14. If you think this through, it shows you the joy, the severity, and the hope of being born into this group. They will be blessed or judged with this group under this covenant, but they also possess the promises granted by it of Messiah and of final restoration when they, as a nation, enter into the new covenant. Throughout all of the ages, the words of Moses are binding upon those who are born into Israel until they come into the new covenant. Again, the doctrine of replacement theology fails entirely when the words of Moses are properly considered. What he is saying has absolutely nothing to do with the inclusion of Gentiles into the new covenant. It is solely addressed to this group of people and in regard to the covenant now being established. Hence, the new covenant, which comes forth from the Mosaic covenant, belongs first and foremost to Israel. Again, Jeremiah 31, 31 absolutely confirms that. It says there, behold, I make a new covenant with the house of the Gentiles. No, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Having said that, the inclusion of Gentiles into the new covenant is clearly presented in both Old Testament as well as the new. Here's what it says in the Old Testament, coming soon to a song of Moses near you. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. And then in Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says it again, Old Testament, folks. Indeed, he says, 
It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And then from Ephesians chapter two, which is what Testament is that? Anybody? New Testament. There you go. Very good. Who says who says, one person got that right? Good job. Therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, you have been brought into the commonwealth. You're not Israel. You didn't replace Israel. You've been brought into the commonwealth of Israel. Admittedly, this type of theology can be mentally taxing and difficult to sort through. But in carefully following Moses' words of Deuteronomy, you will avoid numerous poor or heretical doctrines that have literally flooded the church. Replacement theology, Hebrew roots, and hyper-dispensationalism are all addressed and refuted by what we have looked at today alone. For now, Moses continues forward by looking back. Verse 16, For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt, and that we came through the nations which you passed by. The word avar, or pass through, is used twice. It is very specific. For you know which we dwelt in land Egypt, and which we passed through in midst of the nations which you passed through. Cambridge claims this is an edem per edem, or a tautology, where one expression defines the other with the same thought. This is incorrect. Moses is not defining one thing with the other. He first says, which we pass through, and then, which you pass through. He is saying that he, along with Israel, passed through in the midst of the nations, signifying that they saw how those nations lived. But they, Israel, continued to pass through. The lesson isn't for Moses. It is for Israel. He will continue to explain this. Verse 17, and you saw their abominations. Moses doesn't say, and we saw their abominations. Rather, he is instructing Israel who will live under this law and who would be obligated to it. Also, this is a new word, shikutz, meaning a detested thing. Further, verse 17 continues, and their idols, which were among them. Moses next mentions the gilul. The word comes from galal, meaning to roll. As such, they are logs or circular stones that are round. However, it could also be that they are idols that are placed on carts and rolled around. Either way, they are, verse 17 continues, wood and stone and silver and gold. As such, they're just things. They were lying in the ground and had to be dug up and fashioned, or they were standing as trees and they had to be cut down and fashioned. Whatever the materials are and wherever they came from, they had to be worked and fashioned by the hands of man. Thus, they're not gods at all. They're just worthless, detestable idols that can accomplish nothing, and they can save nobody. Moses is contrasting them to the Lord, who in fact delivered them from Egypt, and who then safely brought them through the nations and to the shores of the Jordan. They had defeated the nations that came against them, and they were ready to enter the land of promise. The Lord had done all of this for Israel, 
Moses has reminded them of these things. Verse 18, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Some translations, like the New King James Version, which I use for the sermons, make verses 16 and 17 parenthetical. If that is correct, it would read as follows. I make this covenant and this oath not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as him who is not here with us today, dot, 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 so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. This is possible. The same word, oath, will be used again in verse 19, translated as curse. Thus, it is a warning from having their hearts turn away from the Lord. If they do, the curses will come upon them. Despite this, Moses' words in Deuteronomy presuppose that the people will turn away from the Lord. If there is a full stop after verse 15, with no parentheses to follow, it would look like this. I'm giving you both because nobody's really certain, okay? Here it is. Here's what it would look like. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by, and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. In this, Moses is saying that in dwelling in Egypt and in being brought through the nations, they were to learn not to turn away from the Lord, who then led them and performed wonders among them. That is what the author of Hebrews relays, using the same thought as now. The people saw the works of the Lord, and yet they turned away anyway. Here's what it says in Hebrews 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Without being dogmatic either way on those verses, Moses says, verse 18 continues, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. Here, three new words are introduced. The first is shoresh or root. In this case, it is a figurative root. The next word is rosh or poison. That comes from rosh meaning a head. Hence, it is a plant with a poisonous head like a poppy. And thirdly is the word la'ana signifying wormwood, like the hemlock. In this, the Hebrew reads bitterness and wormwood, not bitterness or wormwood. The one root is doubly poisonous. There is first the turning away from the Lord God, and then there is going to serve the gods of the nations. The same root produces both poisons. This verse is used again by the author of Hebrews when he says the following in Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is just what Moses is now warning of, meaning the defiling of others when the root comes forth. In verses 19 through 21, he will refer to the man who so turns from the Lord. And then suddenly in verses 22 through 28, it will speak of all of the people being uprooted and the land being cursed. In other words, the actions of one could 
and will eventually affect the entire nation. Though neither of these words is used to describe Manasseh, the effects of his life are exactly the outcome that Moses is now describing. One man. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, with which his anger was aroused against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now think of that. If the Lord deals that way with Israel, you think he's going to deal any differently with what we have in this nation right now? A man that's so perverse and so wicked, just like the president that was before Trump, right? We're standing under judgment because of these things. The Lord said this even after the coming of good King Josiah. Manasseh was born. He did his evil. Josiah came. And even after the coming of good King Josiah, he said, I can't forgive what Manasseh had done. One man many years earlier, and he is going to bring this destruction. The good that he did, Josiah, could not overcome the evil of his grandfather, Manasseh. To describe such a person, Moses says, verse 19, and so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart. It is the same word translated as oath in verse 14. The oath is that which will bring an imprecation upon the person if it is not adhered to. He hears the words of the oath and ignores the warning. Instead, this person goes on, verse 19 continues saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my own heart. Sounds like half of Washington, D.C., maybe more, maybe 90% of them. Here is a new word, sharirut, meaning stubbornness. It comes from sharar, meaning an enemy. In other words, the heart senses what is going on and it is wrong, as if facing an enemy. It is the dilemma that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. He says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to my inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Paul at least acknowledges the battle being faced, but this person, though knowing what is going on, still follows after that wrong sense in his heart without a care. With such a corrupt thought in mind, Moses uses an idiom to describe this warped soul. Verse 19 finishes with, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Okay, this is a very complicated set of words. I'm going to give you a lot of interpretations of it. To end purpose, join the watered with the thirsty. That's my translation. That's literal. It is a set of words that is widely translated. I'm going to read you these so that you can get maybe a sense of what it's saying. It's a complicated set of words. From the BSB, this will bring disaster on the watered land as well as the dry. From the ESV, this will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. From the KJV, to add drunkenness to thirst. From the Amplified Bible, in order that the watered land dwindles away along with the dry, destroying everything. And then from the BST, lest the sinner destroy the guiltless with him. From the CEV, you will cause the rest of Israel to be punished along with you. 
And then finally from the Dewey Rhymes, and the drunken may consume the thirsty. You can see, nobody's really sure. It's a very complicated set of words, but it is idiomatic in nature. The general idea, though, regardless of the translation, is that disaster will come upon all alike when such occurs. Israel is a corporate body, and they will suffer corporate punishment. That was seen in the first verses today. The entire nation and all who issue from them and all those who are joined to them are entered into the covenant. It is the same general idea expressed by the Lord when he prophesied of the coming destruction upon Israel. Here's what it says in Luke 23. And a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, here it is, the days are coming in which they will say, blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the greenwood, what will be done in the dry? Being a corporate body, the innocent would be swept away with the guilty. We now stand before the Lord our God to enter with him into the covenant and the oath too. We shall pass through with our feet shod, prepared to meet him, so we are set to do. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. This covenant can only bring to us shame of face. Surely only wickedness we can do, and upon your glorious name we will bring disgrace. And so the curse and the oath will come upon us until we turn our hearts back to you. When we call out for mercy through the Lord Jesus, then you will hear because you are faithful and true. Our second thought today, very short, obtaining the inheritance. In verse 12, it was noted that the covenant was being cut in order to establish Israel as his people so that the Lord would be their God in accord with the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That was a land promise. However, the Lord also cut a covenant with Abraham, which was based on faith, not on the law that is now being cut. That is recorded in Genesis 15. Before I go on, is Genesis 15 before Deuteronomy 29 or after? It's before. Okay, good. You got that. Paul, using that as a case for salvation through faith and not through the law, says the following in Galatians chapter 3. It's a lot of words. It would be a huge study. I'm just going to read it and think on it. For as many as are of works of the law, which we're looking at right now, are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. That's written in their own law. That's an Old Testament quote. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. You've got the law, you've got to live out the law. But the law itself says that the just man will live by faith. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Where is that written? The book of Deuteronomy, right in the law itself, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant. Yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls it or adds to it. 
now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, there's a covenant with Abraham, 430 years later, the law is given. It cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul's words speak of the inheritance coming by promise and that it was based on faith. Obviously, this is so because this occurred 430 years before the giving of the law. God spoke, Abraham believed, and the promise was made. Paul demonstrates that the law has no part in obtaining the inheritance. If it did, then the promise would have been worthless. But the promise came via a covenant. The Lord himself went through the pieces of the animal. Abraham did nothing except believe, and God made the covenant. Only he, God, passed through the parts of the animal. Therefore, if he failed to give the inheritance by faith, he would violate his own covenant. Such cannot be. This is why Christ came. The land, though seemingly the inheritance, is only a typological representation of it. This does not negate a literal inheritance of the land of Canaan by Israel. And indeed, both Isaac and Jacob were promised that the land would belong to their descendants. And so, for corporate Israel, the typology must meet up with the antitype. That's what's happening in the world right now. They are in the land and they will meet up with what the typology only anticipates, Jesus. This is why they are back in the land right now. The gathering of the people in the land will lead to the act of faith in Christ. As Adam Clark noted, both sides need to punctually and faithfully perform their respective conditions. The impossibility of Israel performing their side of the covenant has been seen, and it will be seen all the way through the Old Testament. However, Christ, the true Israel, was able to perform. In his performance, the new covenant was cut in his death. It is only there, at the cross of Jesus Christ, that Israel will find their righteousness, his performance, and thus his righteousness imputed to them. The promise to Abraham must stand it is a promise that was granted based on his faith, not by any works that he did. As this is so, then Israel, and indeed all people, must follow in the pattern of Abraham. So much for John Hagee, who I mentioned on the first page of this sermon. He says that the Jews are saved by adherence to the covenant. Incorrect. The law cannot negate what was already established by God in Christ. So let us not ignore that lesson. Instead, let us find that righteousness which is not of the law, but which nonetheless comes from the fulfillment of the law. Let us trust in Christ and what he has done. And then, only then, let us live out our works that we were created for in Christ Jesus. And let us be grateful to God for what he has done all the days of our lives. The wonderment of God in Christ is too spectacular to diminish by falling back on deeds of our own supposed righteousness in order to somehow merit God's favor. Impossible. Anything that you add to this means that this was insufficient. It, that's it. Nothing we can add to this except our gratitude, our thanks. Thank you, God. 
we start saying, I need to start tithing to the church. I've got to, you know, go to church on Saturday or anything like that. You have added to what Jesus Christ has done. I'm sorry. That brings condemnation. It does not bring any further reward, any further benefit. It does not. I don't care what people teach in that regard. We got denominations all over the world that add these things in, and that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. This is what we need to remember. It's so simple that we just trip right over it. That's why Paul calls it a stumbling block. Teeny little thing that you don't even see and you just trip over it. You fall. You know, one day I was driving down the road. I was leaving the mall and I was driving back home. And there's this guy walking down the bike path. Okay. And he was a bloody mess. There was blood everywhere. I pulled over. I said, do you need help? He said, yes, please. And he got in my car and he was bleeding everywhere. I mean, that car had blood everywhere. I had a, a towel and I just gave it to him and he's holding it on there. I said, what happened? He said, I was walking down the, the bike path and the concrete was up just a little bit. And I slipped him right down and you know, your head, he's already running. And what was he doing? He was so scared. He was running. I said, slow down. You're pumping your blood out of you. So we got him in there. I got him right over to um, uh, Sanderling Road, that little guy that stands there and guards the rich people. And he called the EMS and I took off. But I'm telling you, a stumbling block is something that you just trip over. That's what Jesus is. I got to do this and I got to do that. And God will be pleased with me. He couldn't care diddly about what you do. He has already done everything for you right here in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law. He gave his life up in fulfillment of the law. And all he asks us to do is to simply believe, just like Abraham. Skip over the law, folks. Get to Jesus and then call on Jesus. That's all that he wants us to do with our lives is to simply trust him. Nothing else. Don't trip and be bloody, okay? Our closing verse comes from Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Yehovah Tzikenu, the Lord our righteousness. It's not our righteousness unless it's with the Lord. He did the work. Next week is Deuteronomy 29, 20 through 29. Things hidden even from kings. It's entitled The Secret Things. That'll be our 86th Deuteronomy sermon. That'll end chapter 29 for us. Good stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into his land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, I got a question for you. This will be very easy. Somebody will get this. I guarantee it. If not, I will... Um, I'll, yeah, I'll eat. No, I won't eat my foot. That would be gross. I'll punch myself in the head. How's that? I'll give myself a really hard noogie. Okay. Somebody's going to get this. What happened to King Uzziah in his great act of disobedience against God? Who said that? You? Okay. She got it. And I didn't. Here, you get this. This is the last one from Seth out in um, Kansas. This is a Corvette C8R. You're going to drive home so fast. You watch yourself, Missy. You keep the speed limit, okay? 
We're not lawbreakers here. Oh, good. That's wonderful. Good job. Did anybody else get it or just you? I knew somebody would. What's that? Um, what happened to King Uzziah in his great act of disobedience against God? He went into the temple to burn incense. And the priest came and accosted him, brave men, it says. And he said, I'm going to do this anyway. And they said, no, you're not. You're violating the Lord's law. The king is not allowed to do the priestly duty. And all of a sudden, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. And they rushed him out of there. And indeed, it says he was glad to get out of there. And where did he spend the rest of his life? Emergency room. Yeah, an emergency room. He was in a house excluded from the house of the Lord. His son, I think Jotham, reigned in his place all the rest of his life. He was excluded from the fellowship of the Lord, and he had to live in a house all by himself because he was unclean. This is entitled, That He May Establish You Today. All of you stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders and your tribes as well, and your elders and your officers, all the men of Israel. Your little ones and your wives, the stranger who is in your camp too, from the one who cuts your wood, the one who draws your water for you, that you may enter into covenant with the Lord your God and into his oath, which the Lord your God makes with you today, that he may establish you today as a people for himself, and that he may be God to you. So I relay, just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today, so I convey before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by doing as the Lord told. And you saw their abominations and their idols, which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold, so that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today, such would not be good from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the words of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. That type of thinking must cease. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for this wonderful ongoing story of beauty and redemption, even in the midst of cursing and disobedience. Lord, you've given us the lesson in the people of Israel, and it's a tough lesson that they have had to learn, and it's one that we must learn from their history. And so help us to do so. Help us to look on them and to pity them at the same time as wanting for them to be converted. We pray for Israel today that many will come before the times of disaster approach this world and destroy so many lives. We pray for them, Lord. And we certainly also lift up all of the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this service today, people with all kinds of afflictions and trials and troubles. And Lord, we lift them up to you asking that you will be with them and attend to them accordingly. Thank you for the blessings you've given us. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.